Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 7th, 2010, and my guest is Diane Ravitch, formerly the Assistant Secretary of Education, currently a research professor at NYU, and the author most recently of The Death and Life of the Great American School System, How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education, and that book is our topic for today. Diane, welcome to Econ Talk. It's great to be with you, Russ. So your book opens with a very broad brush and very illuminating account of some of the reform movements of the last century or so. What were some of those ideas and uh, what happened to them in, in the United States? Well, I've been writing about education uh, and history of education for about 40 years. I got my doctorate at Columbia uh, 35 years ago. Um, and what I've always noticed uh, from the very beginning was American education always seems to be in crisis, and the crisis talk is used to drive some particular change. In the beginning of the 20th century, it was progressives who said we were in crisis because the schools were too traditional and there needed to be a more progressive, active, hands-on curriculum. And, you know, we've heard this time and again throughout the 20th century. Um, and there was also a demand in the early 20th century for more vocational education, more industrial education. This led to the uh, passage of the first federal legislation about education, which was aid to vocational education, the Smith-Hughes Act of 1917. Uh, during the 20s, the great crisis was the lack of seats because we'd had this huge torrent of immigration from all over Eastern Europe and uh, not enough seats to fill them, uh, to uh, to house the kids who were coming into schools. So there was a big boom in, con- in uh, school construction in the 20s, uh, but in the 30s, the demand was... Um, Twofold was one is uh, the curriculum was too rigid. I mean, we always hear this: the curriculum is too rigid, it's too traditional. We should be teaching kids to be uh, out in the world and, and learning about the real world because we're in a depression now, and even the little kids have to put their shoulders to the wheel and learn about the real world. Uh, the other demand of the 30s was um, sort of reflective of, of the rise of socialism and communism, and that is the age of individualism is over. It's time now for us to have collective action, and the schools should build a new social order. Uh, this is something a modest that, task. What? A modest a task. A modest task for school children, <laughs> yeah. indeed, and for school teachers, for that matter, who are having just enough trouble uh, teaching kids to read, write, and do math, uh, let alone build a new social order. Uh, but I wrote about all of this in a book that I published 10 years ago called Left Back, which is a history of the 20th century. In the 40s, we heard the demand for federal aid education. Uh, again, in the 50s, because the schools had, uh, had, because of the Depression and the war, had had many, many years of deferred maintenance and school buildings were crumbling, and, and the South had the terrible inequity of racial segregation. So, you know, one can go on and on, and then the 60s we get to the period of legislative and judicial activism where the federal government finally passes major federal aid to education and also begins to take steps through both through legislation and through the courts uh, to end segregation, uh, at least de jure segregation, and to uh, use school funding from the federal level to, as a lever to force southern districts to stop uh, assigning kids to school on the uh, basis of their race. Uh, it's been, you know, crisis after crisis in every uh, decade. And in the 1980s, and this is where I really pick up the story with this current book, um, there was a report that was very uh, dramatic called The Nation at Risk. And the this was a report that came out under the aegis of the Reagan administration in 1983, although Reagan himself didn't like the report, he wanted a, he wanted the report to say we need vouchers in school prayer, uh, and the report didn't say that. What the report said was uh, we need to have a, a real high school graduation requirements, expectations that kids will study uh, English and history and, and literature and science and the arts and so forth, and have a balanced curriculum and have well prepared teachers and, and well paid teachers and good textbooks and sort of basic stuff and uh, about how the schools ought to be improved. Um, and a lot of th- that caused a huge flurry. I mean, there were like a half million or so copies of that report in print. There has never been a government publication education that's had that much at least discussion about around it, if not um, action. Um, and so that pretty much set the agenda. It said our nation is at risk. There's a rising tide of mediocrity. Uh, we got to do something. Um, then we have 
the first President Bush, whom I worked for, although I didn't work for him in the beginning, he called, he convened all the governors and said, we have to have goals for education. So uh, the governors, led by Bill Clinton, set six national goals, one of them being, America will lead the world in math and science by the year 2000. All children will start school ready to learn by the year 2000. Uh, our graduation rates will rise to 90% by the year 2000. We have not reached any of the goals that were set for the year 2000. It's now 2010. We've sort of forgotten about the goals panel and all of that stuff. Um, but th- this was also the, a point at which uh, in the n- early 90s uh, there were great demands for, well, maybe maybe the answer is choice. Chubb and Moe, John Chubb and Terry Moe, wrote a very powerful, influential book called the Politics, Markets, and America's Schools, where they said that the reason achievement was low was because uh, we had these terrible bureaucracies and unions, and they stood in the way of improvement. Uh, and so they recommended vouchers and choice, and they said uh, that they would wanted to suggest that choice itself was, in fact, a panacea, and that with more choice we would see dramatically rising achievement in, in education. Um, I mean... I don't know if you want me to go on, but I, want you, I, I don't want stop to get into there. too much detail. But um, I want to stop there because we're okay. going to come back and talk about what, what happened when choice enthusiasm was actually implemented and the accountability movement, which mm-hmm. which was so influential. And you talk about it at great length in the book in, in very enlightening and unfortunately depressing ways. But before we get to that, I, I want to ask you a more broad question. Reading your history of the 20th century and – I was struck by the analogy to uh, development and growth and poverty in in the world. So in a really uh, similarly depressing book, The Elusive Quest for Growth by William Easterly, uh, Easterly outlines all these different fads that that the intellectual elite went through in terms of how to get poor people in poor countries to a decent standard of living. And in the one era that everyone knows that the problem is there's not enough investment in poor countries, so we just have to have investment because we all know that investment creates growth, and that'll that'll solve the problem, and then it doesn't. So then there's a new fad, and as I'm reading the book, I get to the part where I'm going to, of course, find out that something really works, and that's human capital, that if we just give enough education to the students of the world, to the children of the world, they'll, they'll grow, and their their lives will be better, and they'll get out of poverty, and of course – Building schools in poor countries hasn't, unfortunately, or spending more money on education in poor countries hasn't had any influence either. So, so as I read your book, I had a very similar feeling of, of I guess, a sort of an inverse epiphany. You, you know, a new fad comes along in, in national education theory that, that's going to solve finally get us out of the crisis, get us out of mediocrity, mm-hmm. and of course, it never does. It doesn't solve the in the trenches classroom experience of a you know a passionate experienced motivated teacher in front of a group of excited and sometimes bored but hard working if they want to be kids that's right. the only way we know to get children to learn and think they have to have first rate teachers with a great curriculum which you talk a lot about i think very well right. uh none of those fads whether they're accountability choice standards uh the physical schoolroom Etc. None of those fads touch those things in any direct way, so I, it suggests we're looking in the wrong place, don't you think? Well, uh, yes, we are, and and but it's not. You can't detach schools from the society that they're part of. Uh, I was talking to a teacher this morning, and she said, "You have to understand." And this is someone who teaches in an urban school, and has spent many years in urban schools. She says, "We're teaching in a war zone." Now, the schools are not themselves the war zone. They didn't create the war zone. There are perfectly wonderful teachers who go into school and encounter kids, A, who don't speak English in large numbers, B, who come from families where nobody ever tells them to do their homework or even to attend school regularly, and C, and this would be a great majority of our kids, kids who are enormously distracted by our popular culture. Uh, there was a report that came out um, a few months ago from the Kaiser Family Foundation that I found very shocking that said the average child from ages 8 to 18 spends seven and a half hours a day with electronic devices. Oh, yeah. That's way more powerful than the hour or a few <laughs> hours with a teacher. Yeah. So the teachers are fighting against the popular culture. They're fighting against families that are, uh, in many cases, either dysfunctional or, or neglectful or uh, not putting any effort into doing their share. Uh, and they have kids arriving who 
in some cases really want to learn and are motivated and eager, but in a lot of cases are, are just not interested. They don't see the point. They, uh, you know, they didn't get any sleep the night before. They don't come to school. I mean, there are all these problems, and we're somehow supposed to ignore them and say in this utopian way, oh, well, by the year 2014, 100% of our kids will be proficient or we're going to close your school and fire your staff. <clears throat> I mean, that seems to me, uh, whether you're an economist, a sociologist, or just a parent, an ordinary citizen, uh, we're in a national era of madness about our schools. And it reminds me of somebody, you know, comes in with, uh, uh, you know, chest pains and they chop off the person's foot because, well, the foot didn't look so good. It's obvious to me uh, that while our school system has some serious institutional problems, most of the long-term trend in school performance is not the school's problem. It's these cultural issues. Well, it's also driven by demography. Yeah. I mean, in some interview recently, uh, this is one of the networks, they kept asking the same question over and over again. How are we going to raise achievement? How are we going to raise achievement? And I finally said in desperation what is probably the truth, which is if we could figure out how to eliminate poverty and, and also close off all immigration, I'm not recommending the second. I'm just saying that as long as we continue to have a steady inflow of non-English-speaking kids, we're going to have low performance on, on test of English. I mean, that seems like an obvious thing. And if you want to look at, let's say, 50 years of social science research or longer, uh, the single most reliable predictor of educational achievement is socioeconomic status. Yep. And uh, college-educated parents tend to pass along their advantages to their kids, and poor parents don't have those advantages to pass on, which doesn't mean that everybody is destined to go in their parents' footsteps, but the odds are not with them. Yeah, although we know ex we know the exceptional occasional school or school teacher sure. who, who can manage to overcome those challenges. Yeah, they, I mean, these are, but they can overcome the odds, but the odds are not, yeah. are not in favor of uh, poor kids making high scores and rich kids making low scores. That's not where the odds are. Let's go to the last 20 or so years uh, that, that we stopped at, and I want to talk about the two issues you focus on in great detail in the book, uh, accountability and choice, two movements that you uh, initially embraced and have come to reject, and it's uh, – the honesty of the book is very impressive and um, moving actually to me as someone who thinks a lot about what I believe in and what I, what I favor, so I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. Let's start with accountability, which, again, on the surface, seems like a no-brainer. Certainly right. schools should do a good job. And So what happened politically and in the trenches with accountability over the last two decades? Well, the accountability movement begins, I'd say, in the 1980s, and part of it has to do with the nation at risk where people say, well, we have to, weigh, have, to have a way of measuring whether we're going forward or not, going backward. So all the governors and, and all the key policymakers are agreed we have to measure seems reasonable, and uh, the Southern governors put out a report called A Time for Results, and they said, we'll give you, they said to the schools, we'll give you more flexibility and autonomy if you give us the measures. Uh, sounds reasonable. Everybody understands measures. The question is, how good is the data? And that, that, that comes a little bit later. First comes the great passion for accountability, and I was very much in favor of it. I, I Fortunately, I didn't write any books about it, <laughs> and so whereas I've changed my mind about these issues, I don't... I have to say, I don't recant anything or, or, or reject anything that I've written in, whether it's Left Back or The Language Police or The Great School Wars. Or I've written a lot of books, and none of them are, fortunately, about the issues that I now find to be leading us in the wrong direction. But I wrote many, many articles uh, about merit pay and charters and, and accountability and how testing uh, could drive improvement. What I didn't understand was, and I guess, you know, people have said to me, how could you have been so stupid? Anyone who worked in the classroom knew this, but yeah. I didn't. Uh, you weren't and, alone. What? <laughs> you weren't alone. <laughs> I, weren't, I wasn't alone. I mean, Teddy Kennedy was the biggest uh, Democratic supporter of No Child Left Behind, as, and almost 90% of the Democrats in Congress voted for it. So it wasn't that I was out there by myself and I wasn't an architect of No Child Left Behind. So... You know, there was a kind of a, a national agreement, at least in 2001, 2002, that uh, measuring would somehow uh, take us forward. But then over time, as I watched what was happening, I saw what, you know, the most extreme critics had predicted, but I wasn't wise enough to see. Uh, first of all, that if you're only measuring reading and math, basic skills, grades three through eight, that's all you're incentivizing people to teach. And if, 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 they, if you have high stakes attached to them, uh, as they are now, then uh, they are increasingly incentivized to teach only those subjects. 
And if you're only teaching basic skills, you're not teaching the arts and science and history and geography and literature and everything that an educated person like myself would say was part of a good education. So rather than getting a good education, we're only getting an emphasis on basic skills. And the irony is we're not even making progress on basic skills. You know, you, you, know, you say an educated person would all say those are important. I think every parent, virtually every parent, would say the same thing. Right. Certainly, you want every your child to go to school and only master test-taking skills. That's or, really what it's about. Or even just mastering math and reading, which are very important. No parent thinks they're unimportant, but they certainly want their kids to learn some history and to right. learn to appreciate art and maybe be great at it if that's their gift. And so it it is a. Um, well, I'm sure someone would bring up a public opinion poll and say, "Ah, parents don't care about that. They just want their kids to be able to get a job." Yeah. But well, you know, if all you have is is the basic skills. You're handicapped in terms of being able to go to college. Uh, you're handicapped in terms of being able to, uh, let's say, move up the social scale because you're, you're really trained for low-level work. And, and, you know, the irony of all of this emphasis on basic skills is we don't really see the emphasis reflected in rising test scores on the only test that I consider to be a valid measure, which is the federal test, which is the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And I served on that board for seven years, and I think it's a very good test. And, I, and, you know, the irony, again, another irony, I'm not against testing. I think testing is very useful as long as it's used for information and diagnostic purposes. I just think that when you begin punishing people for not getting the right scores, you, do, you warp the testing, you warp the accountability, you warp, every, you warp the whole thing you're trying to measure because people will give you the scores and the scores will be meaningless because they cheat. Uh, what you do is induce institutionalized fraud. Yeah, no, the book has some wonderful examples of that, and I encourage everybody to read uh, to read the book if, if if only for that because it shows what's going on behind the headlines. You know, the headline is New York City shows improvement. Now they've redefined what level one, the lowest level, is, and that's one way they get improvement. They literally cheat, of course. Also, there's there's actual fraud, right. but they the fraud is subtler. It's right. um, well, in it, case of New York City scores, uh, when they found that. The mayor took charge in, I think it was the fall of, he was elected in the fall of 2001. He took over the schools in 2002. And when the scores came out for 2003, and I, I'm trying to remember that the chronology was such that there was a big jump in scores right at the time that he took over, but he hadn't done anything yet, hadn't introduced a single program. But you got to wave that around. <laughs> yeah, but, but later, it was like two years later when they realized that they were not getting big gains, they started taking credit for the year before he implemented his program. Uh, and they have still to this day uh, take the baseline is the minute he took control before he had even decided what he was going to do. Well, that's how skilled he was. The children yeah. got smarter just from knowing that he'd be in charge. Well, see, this, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, it was the name on the door that did it. Yeah. Uh, but see, this is the thing about um, why I'm, I'm not antagonistic either business or capitalism. I would not live in any other society. I, I love living in a free market society. The problem is you get these Enron-style accounting methods uh, where the business is doing spectacularly well right up until the day it goes into bankruptcy. Uh, because the numbers can be played with. And one of the things I did, which is I haven't really ever talked about, was before I started writing the book, I immersed myself in reading about business um, business scandals. I read um, Barbarians at the Gate and uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room. I read, read two or three different books about Enron and also about uh, At Any Cost, about General Electric. And just, uh, where were the others? So a bunch of others. There were about a dozen books that were easily accessible to someone like me. I'm not an economist and don't have the great financial skills to figure out how they, how they do these things. Uh, but I was fascinated to see how the numbers can be played with to produce good results. Uh, but someday the day of reckoning appears. And when the day of reckoning comes, like in the fall of 2008, somebody like me loses a huge amount of their net wealth because uh, the guys in the business sector were playing with the numbers. Yeah, Maybe that's not true. Maybe no, it's part it. of it. It's part of it. I think the other part, it's a long other story, which listeners have heard us do many shows on, but the you know, the other part was the incentives they faced and, and whether that, I believe, that perverted their incentives to take well, care of that's exactly it. It's, it's about creating an incentive and saying you're going to get a big reward if you get this number and you're going to get punished or fired if you don't get that number, and that's what's being done to the schools right now. And what I find most horrible about No Child Left Behind is, first of all, it sets a utopian goal. It says 100% of children will be, will be proficient by the year 2014, 
and every school will make progress for every group by race, ethnicity, language skills, etc. And if you don't make progress for every group, you're going to be put on the failing list. And every year that you're on a failing list, the penalties get worse and worse to the point where you'll be closed, uh, privatized, uh, turned into a charter school, handed over to the state. Everybody will be fired. I mean, the, it, you have to ask yourself, as, as I did at the time, I was at a conference, a Hoover Institution conference, and the spring of 2002, right after No Child Left Behind was signed, and I was in the, I, I was on one panel, and then the next panel was a group of senators, and I stood up and I said, do you really think that 100% of children will be proficient by the year 2014? And a senator whom I know and respect said, no, we don't really think that, but we think it's good to have goals. Yeah. Aim high. If you have a goal that is out of reach, how can you punish people because they can't do it? Yeah. Um, You encourage them, of course, to cheat, as as we were talking about earlier. Right. Let's turn to New York City because there are a couple of case studies that you you give in the book. The New York City one is one of the most interesting. Um, Joel Klein comes to New York to bring – all kinds of improvements to the system. He is handpicked by Mayor Bloomberg, and he does something that that you recount happens in other cities, which I found so interesting, which is what you call, I think, a left-right set of reforms. The actual curriculum that is put in place is so-called progressive or at least favorable to the left, but the techniques and the way it's implemented is more business-like, which is supposed to uh, comfort the right. So describe right. describe sure. how that worked in New York City well, well, and in general. You know, the assumption that, that I made was that the mayor campaigned saying he was going to install a back-to-basics curriculum. Uh, and I've, I've always been fond of a back-to-basics curriculum. I'm basically a traditionalist in curriculum and instruction, and I think that um, I, I, one of my the, this, the book I wrote 10 years ago, Left Back, was a critique of progressivism and, and especially uh, this idea that kids sort of figure out and discover things all by themselves rather than having knowledgeable teachers in front of them actually teaching them. Uh, but when the mayor actually took charge and brought in Klein and neither of them being educators, uh, for reasons that I've never understood, they aligned themselves with uh, the constructivist, progressivist curriculum approaches in both reading and math. And reading and math uh, were... They, this was synonymous with the adoption of No Child Left Behind, so the only thing that counted was reading and math. And they installed balanced literacy, which is kids learning how to do text-to-text connections and text-to-self connections and paired reading and shared reading and da-da-da-da-da. Uh, it's not a back-to-basics reading approach. Um, and the math program is called Everyday Math. Everyday Math has in some places been successful, but the state of California has literally prohibited Everyday Math because it's a very constructivist program. Explain and what you mean by constructivist. Constructivist means kids kind of figuring things out for themselves and uh, having seven different ways to solve a problem instead of being taught the basics. And the basics in math are uh, addition, subtraction, and multiplication, division. And districts that use this particular program usually have to adopt yet a second program to teach the basic skills because everyday math doesn't teach the basic skills. It's it's constructivist. It's, uh, you know, here's a problem, and uh, let's see if we can find four different ways to solve it or eight different ways. And And then I love the example you gave. So a student works out one or two ways and then, uh, for example, how to take a bunch of numbers and have – Different combinations of those numbers say reach ten. So you have you could have add some, you could subtract others. So you're supposed to come up with a set, and then another student's working on it, and then you get together with that other student, you share your ideas together, you work on new ones, which is very beautiful. It sounds lovely, um, but of course, unfortunately, there are a whole bunch of students who, for the entire forty five minutes, don't come up with a solution. Right. They've learned nothing right. other than the fact that they feel stupid because they can't come up with a solution, right. and there's no instruction. And it's it's shocking, really. It's, it's- so, you know, in many cases, it's kids teaching kids teaching each other. But, but I, I sort of think that kids need to have this fundamental equipment of being able to say uh, six times eight is forty eight, yeah. and not having to think it through and and having uh, counting it out on their fingers and toes. Um, but you know, people argue about it. A lot of people think it's wonderful, but it is considered. Most of them good... aren't parents, by the way. Pardon? Most of them are not parents. Uh, there's been a huge revolt across the country at the grassroots level by parents who don't feel that their children are able to do basic algebra and other activities because they did not learn those basics. Well, there's also, uh, I think, a a revolt among math professors. Math professors see the kids coming in from school, and and they're horrified because uh, they're not well prepared for higher education in math. 
So, you know, these are important things, but nonetheless, Bloomberg and Klein, uh, for whatever reason, decided that they would go with the teachers' colleges, the ed schools, and, and uh, at one point there was actually a group of reading professors who did not like the balanced literacy approach, and they wrote a private letter to Joel Klein, and there were seven of them, and they said, we think that this is a mistake. We urge you not to adopt this program. It's never been tried and proven successful, particularly with the students in our schools who are coming from very, in most cases, very disadvantaged and, and poor homes. They, they, they'll not be able to do well with this. And his response was that uh, he, he got a letter from 100 education professors to say, we love your choice. You made exactly the right choice. And some of these, I looked at the list of the people who signed on, and they were like professors of nothing having to do with reading. Uh, you know, so the seven eminent reading people were discounted, and the hundred who were teaching uh, a million and zillion other things uh, reconfirmed his decision he had made, and, and that this was right. Well, even, well in even 2007, s- the, the national assessment scores came out showing that New York City made zero progress in reading from 2003 to 2007. Uh, we'll be having test scores come out again in a, uh, probably in the next few weeks. Uh, and I think they'll probably be flat because New York State was flat. So if, if New York State didn't make any gains in the last two years, it seems likely that New York City didn't either, in which case we will have had no progress in reading from 2003 to 2009. Well, even a student of everyday math knows that 100 is greater than 7. So 100 signatories outweigh 7. Right. I think you also pointed out that some of the signatories, one of them the lead one in support of uh, Klein, Got the contracts yeah. to do the training. <laughs> and and that happened with No Child Left Behind. There was all kinds of uh, – the Washington Post reported on this, uh, which most people never noticed. But Washington Post reported that the No Child Left Behind generated a whole set of new curricular materials that unfortunately went – were produced by someone with ties to the Department of Education, at mm-hmm. least formerly. One of the sub-themes of your book, which I think is uh, particularly depressing – is the explosion in teacher training, consultancy, and other also benefits. Also in, in the testing industry and all, yeah. in the test prep industry. I mean, the, the test prep industry is now a billion-dollar industry, and maybe that creates jobs, but it's the wrong jobs. Instead yeah. of pumping all that money into preparing kids to take tests, they should be getting instruction. This is all a great diversion and a distraction from good education. So, you know, the obvious thing that people said when No Child Left Behind was passed was that Oh, this is bad. It'll 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 cause stu- teachers to teach to the test. And the response to that, which is a reasonable response, is well. But if it's a good test, uh, that's not bad. It's you know there's some basic fundamental things we want people to learn. But as you point out, not only did that corrupt the whole test design process, the whole collection of data, the cherry picking of students from certain schools, and and abusive data analysis, uh, but it also, as you said, focused everybody on. Reading and writing, which and math, which again are incredibly important, they weren't even good at that. That's what's extraordinary. It would, it would be a depressing enough story if, because of this focus on reading, uh, literacy, and, and mathematics, that's all students got good at. They didn't right. even get good at that. It's it's an incredible tragedy. Right. Well, you know, you, you can look at the uh, NAEP test scores, which again, the federal tests, it's scientific samples in all fifty states and across the nation. And what they show is that the gains in math were larger than the gains uh, before No Child Left Behind uh, than they have been since No Child Left Behind. In reading, there have been no gains at all. Uh, There have been small gains in the fourth grade. In the eighth grade, where the kids have been taking the test every year from 2003 to 2009, it's a flat line. And uh, it was in 1998, the scale score in reading was 264. In 2009, the scale score for eighth graders was 264. Zero, zero improvement. And as you, as you point out in the book, there, there are many ways that the city made it look like their own tests were showing improvement. Yeah, but when well, you... the state tests kept going up, and the state tests were, were just – I don't want to put too strong a term on it. They just weren't accurate. I mean, not only were they not accurate, the, the state officials lowered the cut score. The cut score is where you set the passing mark. They lowered the passing mark. How surprising. So let's move on to the next uh, reform, which is one I'm – uh, very sympathetic to, although as I read about it in your book, of course, it turns out that in practice it didn't work out as well as some of us who liked it would hope, which was the choice movement. Mm-hmm. So the choice movement, as you point out, really begins 1955 with a paper by Milton Friedman suggesting that competition among schools for the best students or for any students, uh, that 
the fact that a school could fail, the fact that you'd have to attract students, that we should let students and parents vote with their feet and give students and parents vouchers. Uh, the way that happened in practice in the sort of the 90s and the, the 2000s didn't quite work out that way, and in particular didn't work out very well in terms of, of accomplishment, either because the idea of it is wrong, which I have trouble accepting, but that's let's put that to the side, but certainly the way it was implemented didn't help. So talk about what the choice movement actually did in practice, uh, which there was a lot of enthusiasm for it, as you point right. out. Well, I was enthusiastic about choice because I hoped it was a way of, of reaching the kids at the bottom and lifting them up. Um, but what, what's happened is that, first of all, vouchers have been stymied by the fact that many states have state constitutional provisions borrowing, borrowing, prohibiting uh, any public funds to sectarian institutions. Uh, so that's been a huge handicap. And then there was uh, the first vouchers were instituted in Milwaukee in 1990, and that was subject to court battles up until 1998 when uh, the court said it's okay. Uh, then vouchers were instituted by the Ohio legislature for Cleveland, and that was 1995. And then Congress uh, passed a, a, a program for vouchers in D.C., I think it was 2003. Which I think they recently killed. Yeah, which has pretty much been put in a death uh, phase. I mean, I think they, they're freezing the program, letting it play out, but they're not yeah. taking in any new students. In Milwaukee, there have been battles over did vouchers help or not, but I don't think there's anybody who says that vouchers have made a dramatic difference, neither in Milwaukee nor Cleveland. And the reason the battles go on is because there is no conclusive data that show that vouchers have made a big difference. It, it, they, they may have been had some good effects. Uh, they may have had no effects. They certainly haven't harmed anybody. Um, but the, it has not been the revolution or the panacea that Chubb and Moe talked about. In Washington, D.C., the third-year evaluation showed some positive effects, uh, but the program is likely to die because the Congress doesn't like it. But if you step back and say, we have an educational system that really needs big change across the system of 50 million kids, and after 50 years of agitation for vouchers, or maybe you would take it from Ronald Reagan and say it's been 30 years of agitation, or you could start with Chubb and Moe and say it's been 20 years. We have 30,000 children with vouchers. Somehow the odds just don't seem like it's with vouchers as being a solution because, first of all, the supply is not there. Even if you had a real voucher program, the number of Catholic schools that exist are diminishing by the day, being killed, by the way, in many cases, not only by the financial position and, and the problems of the Catholic Church, but also because the competition with charter schools is driving Catholic schools out of business. I'm a great supporter of Catholic education, and, and I'm not Catholic. I Every year I give money to a high school in the neighborhood. Uh, I've put two kids through Catholic school because I think they were getting a better education. Uh, but Catholic schools are not going to get public money in, in New York City. And even if there were a voucher program, they, there still wouldn't be enough places to make much of a difference for the kids who were most in need of them. Can we talk about – let's talk about the Catholic school system for a second. Sure. I agree with you. There isn't enough right now. The, you know, the, the claim of the voucher movement uh, is that new schools would come along. There'd be an opportunity to make money and, and to attract students if you had a, did a good job. And the charter school movement is an attempt to, to cap, capitalize on that. And we'll, we'll get to charter schools in a second. But I want to ask something important about the Catholic school system. Catholic school system has been very effective. There's there's debates about whether they cherry pick better students than others. Obviously, it's always a Issue in these kind of any kind of assessment, right. whether this you know whether the student body is the same, the parents are the same, and of course they're not. And they never are. Right. Uh, there's always some grounds for being skeptical about empirical work in these in these areas. But in my limited experience with the Catholic school system, and this was in St. Louis when I was talking to the head of the system there, what impressed me there, and I think it's extremely important, and I just I don't hear anyone talk about it, so I'd be curious, given your knowledge of the history, you could help with this. What impressed me there is that what she told me was that every parent in the Catholic school system of St. Louis paid something. Mm -hmm. might be $50 a, a year. might, might. be 500 So most of them didn't – what they paid in tuition didn't cover the cost. The Catholic right. schools in those days had the advantage, as you point out, an advantage that's shrinking of a willingness of a, of a group of people to work at relatively low wages, which helped keep their tuition costs down. And that's being harder and hard. They have it hard, They find it harder and harder to attract those those teachers, but at the time that was an advantage they had. And it's always struck me that the fact that we give education away in the United States 
is part of our problem that our parents don't have the incentive that they would have. I don't know whether it's psychological, whether it's literal, but when you get something for free, you don't value it as much as if you pay for it out of your own pocket. Do you think that's important? And I, don't, well, I think that that's one of the probably one of the keys to the success of Catholic schools. Although I think they have many other keys to their success. I think their most fundamental uh, value is what makes them successful, which is that the people involved in Catholic education have a spiritual commitment to each child. And I've heard this again and again from Catholic educators. They say each child is a child of God, and we will do whatever we can to help that child. And if the child comes to school hungry and homeless, we'll find food and we'll find a home. And we'll do whatever it takes. We'll stay as long as we have to to help that child because, you know, we have a a sacred responsibility. I don't know how you translate that into a public system. Not a, it's, not, that, it's, me, that, it's, it's not. It's not scalable. That's no, true. It's not. It, but it works. It's an important aspect of of, I mean, of the success of the, well, the success we do have. Yeah. <clears throat> My, the, the school that I have helped every year, I send a check to St. Joseph High School in downtown Brooklyn, and the kids there are all impoverished, and they have a graduation. They, they don't have kids kicked out. They don't have kids drop out. They graduate probably in, in the high nineties. Uh, and most of their kids go on to some college. They're not going to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, but they'll go on to local community colleges or city colleges or state universities, and they're well prepared. They have been they have been watched over, uh, hectored, uh, yeah. reprimanded, and loved for and the four years they're there. And they've been carroted and sticked. They've been yes. dragged All and pushed things. and pulled. They've been and... surrounded by adults who care about them, yeah. and makes, they know it. It makes a big difference. But unfortunately, you know, with the the loss of nuns and the loss of of basically free labor, uh, they're facing tremendous financial crises. And and then in many of the dioceses, they're facing a financial crisis because they've been paying out such heavy fines because of the priest abuse issue that they don't have the money to support their schools. Yeah, that's that's a many fold tragedy. So, and you know, I would I would wish that the public schools would learn from the Catholic schools because there there are lessons there. I just don't know how to translate them. Let's uh, let's turn to the charter school movement, which mm-hmm. again, on the face of it, seems so encouraging to those of us who were uh, concerned about the bureaucratic nature of the public school system, the monopoly nature of it, which we argued as economists discouraged innovation, discouraged accountability in any form. So, th- describe what a charter school is and and how they have grown, and what we know about their success and failure. Well, there today, uh, something like. 5,000 charter schools uh, enrolling 1.5 million children. That's 3% of the public school enrollment in the country. Uh, they're concentrated in cities. There are others that are not in cities, but most of them are concentrated in cities. And uh, the idea of the charters was that uh, anyone could apply to the relevant state agency, and by now I think almost every state has a, has a charter school law ex- uh, allowing the creation of charter schools. But the idea was that any group or organization could go to the state and say, I'd like to run a school, here's my plan. Uh, and then if, if their plan is approved and if they're checked out and vetted and, and they're okay, uh, they can open a school and enroll public school students and get the public school tuition payment. Uh, and then every five years or so, their charter would be reviewed. And if they are getting good achievement, the charter will be renewed. And if they're getting poor achievement, the charter will be closed. And... How what what do we know about their relative success? Well, Seems I'm, actually, I'm not opposed to charters, and and uh, while I'm critical of charters, I'm not opposed to them. I think that uh, what, what what we've learned, and this is charters have been around now. The first of them started, I think, in 1992, and the original idea for the charters was came from two men, a guy named Ray Budd, who was a professor of administration at some in University of Massachusetts. And Albert Shanker, Shanker being the president of the American Federation of Teachers. And the two of them simultaneously in 1988, they didn't know each other, uh, had this idea of you could get a group of public school teachers and, and they could create their own school where they would take on the hardest cases. They would take on the kids who were not motivated, the kids who were not English speaking, the kids who were uh, the tough cases. And by having freedom and, you know, freedom from regulation, they could come up with some innovative ideas about how to solve these problems and bring them back to the public schools and make the public schools better. Uh, what's happened though is that the ch- charter schools have turned into a replacement for the voucher movement. Uh, that is, it's become clear that the voucher movement is stalled and, and really not going anywhere. 
the charter school movement then becomes the uh, uh, what attracts people who believe in an unfettered choice, and it's also drawn uh, a huge entrepreneurial sector. So that there are now uh, charter management chains. Some of them are for profit. Some of them are non profit. Uh, some of them are community groups. But there's huge variety, and uh, the best charter chains are groups like KIPP, uh, which is a group called Knowledge is the Knowledge is Power program, and that's been around now for 15 years. They have 82 schools across the country, um, and there are others that uh, Achievement First on Common Schools that have group, uh, you know, more than one school that they run in more than one city, um, and then there are for for profit chains who seem to be making uh, a good living from the charters, uh, and and they. You know, I don't know what their business plan is, but they're able to do some central office operation that saves money, and uh, they can then focus on producing the test scores that, where they can go out and say that they're successful. Now, here's the problem with charters. They no longer subscribe to the original vision of we're here to help public schools get better. Uh, in many places, they see themselves as not just competitors, but we're out to kill public education. This is particularly true in New York City, where we have some very aggressive charter chains uh, who, uh, with the encouragement of of Chancellor Klein, are move, he gives them space in public schools, and then they proceed to try to take over the whole building and push the public schools out and seek to uh, turn the whole neighborhood into a charter neighborhood uh, where there are no public schools. And, and at some point, you, a kid might say uh, they, they they might want to go to the school across the street and find they have to enter a lottery to go to. There is no neighborhood school left anymore. Then everything's been turned into choice. And the whole idea of community has disappeared. Uh, this is a problem because the charter schools, in some cases, not in every case, uh, number one, have been cherry-picking students. Uh, wherever there have been studies done, they tend to show, and again, not every one of the studies, but many of the studies show that the charter schools do not have uh, their fair share of the kids who are hardest to educate. So far from fulfilling the original vision of we'll take the hardest to educate kids, they're, they're trying to avoid them. Uh, not taking their uh, a fair share of English language learners, not taking the fair share of immigrant kids or homeless kids or special ed kids, and consequently, the neighborhood public school gets disproportionately large numbers of the kids who are hardest to educate, and that makes it a little bit difficult to do a fair comparison because one's got a disproportionate number of the hardest to educate kids and the other one doesn't. But I'd say that the, for me, the larger problem <clears throat> about performance. You, the media loves the story of the incredible charter school where poor black kids, poor Hispanic kids are going to go to college. And it's a great story, which has been told again and again, the assumption being made that that's the way all the charter schools are, but it's not true. On average, study after study has shown that charter schools do not get better performance than regular public schools. Uh, the biggest evidence of this is the NAEP. Again, I go back to the one test that I rely on, and that's on the national test, which have been given now to charter students and to public, regular public students since 2003. It's the NAEP, is yeah, which national we've been talking about before. Educational Progress, federally sponsored test, and they have had comparisons of charters in regular public schools, 03, 05, 07, 09. Charters have never outperformed the regular public schools. Black students, Hispanic students, low-income students, uh, the average achievement is about the same in both sectors. So if we're looking for the quantum leap in American education, uh, charters are not going to provide it. They will provide uh, an escape hatch for kids who are looking for something better, uh, but at the same time they'll be drawing away motivated students from the regular public schools, and some people think that's an acceptable trade-off. But I think the bottom line problem for me is that 97% of the kids are in the regular public schools, and it seems like all the really smart brains in this country who care about education are focused on the 3%, and nobody's thinking about what to do about the 97%. Well, let's, let's turn to them. Um, I guess, you know, as an economist looking at this from the outside, who's, who, my wife's a math teacher, so I'm a little bit on the inside. And, of course, I've been a teacher all my, all my, my adult life as a, as a professor in, in various universities. Uh, you know, I know how hard education is. Uh, I know how hard being a good teacher is. It's very time intensive. It's unbelievably time intensive, right? It's one thing to teach one child one thing, play the piano, read French, um, swing a baseball bat. These are all – they're time-consuming by themselves. To right. teach 10 who are all different, who have different personalities, different learning abilities, different um, abilities to sit still for an hour – 
it, it requires an incredibly talented person, and it's something you don't get good at for a while, uh, which every teacher learns, that, that you can actually improve. Right. Um, why do we think that there is any systemic reform that might help other than – and I'm going to be radical here and let you react to it – other than getting rid of the public school system? So we have 97% of the challenges – you're right. They're in the public school system. This is a system that has shown no ability, none, to improve, none, through every fad. Now, it doesn't mean that my system, which would be to get the government out of education entirely, would be mm-hmm. better. It could be worse. It could be much – it's hard for it to be much worse, but it could be worse. Uh, it seems to me that the small steps we've made toward competition, the choice movement, which is mediocre in terms of its achievement, I agree, and the charter movement, which you're right, hasn't been a, 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 a wonderful improvement, some improvement. The one thing it seems to improve a little bit is, is parent satisfaction, which is – it's worth something. Right. They're safer. That's but worth a lot. Not getting much for it. I agree with you. So what? Let's turn now to that's my solution uh, is to get the government out and and let a thousand flowers bloom. Not because this is important. Not because of the rhetoric that you critique in the book, which I agree with you. That a school's like a business. If we introduce competition. I have no idea what the school system would look like if the government weren't running it from on high. But it seems clear to me that anything from on high will fail for all the reasons you talk about. So what can we do either small or large that might help our our children? Okay. I mean, first of all, as parents, obviously you can do a lot. I mean, most education and most of the motivation for education starts at home. And uh, there's a tendency to just forget forget about that and to think that schools are a black box, which they're not. So I won't go into all the ways that parents make a difference, but it's vocabulary, it's experiences, it's curiosity, it's motivation, it's turning off the television, yeah. it's doing your homework, it's all of those things. But So that that's where you could start. I agree. Uh, everyone can do that. But I think in terms of the system, I do think there are things we can do, and probably this is a precious moment because... Obama and Arne Duncan have scared teachers to death. Everybody thinks they're going to be fired, uh, if not this year, the next year or the year after. And they've created a kind of almost a panic because they have picked up uh, this very punitive rhetoric of no child left behind. Uh, So I think it's a moment for changes. The changes I would like to see would be the ones we've always needed, and and that would be to focus on let's, let's have a federal or state policy uh, that we are going to have a, a 20-year plan to change the teaching profession. Anyone who comes into teaching should have a bachelor's degree in the subject they plan to teach and possibly in two different subjects, double major, uh, or, or they should be, be tested to show that they have mastery of the subject that they plan to teach. They should face a rigorous examination in literacy and numeracy to be sure that they're well-educated people that we're putting before our kids. I mean, I don't think we're overrun with bad teachers, but there are bad teachers out there, and they're also people who are really not quite literate who are in the classroom who shouldn't be there. And the way to stop it, I mean, it's not just removing them, but it's also not bringing them in in the first place. Uh, I also think we should have, uh, and this has to be a, a no, not a federal mandate, but we should accept that we need master teachers who are principals because the principal is the one who makes the decision about who to hire, who to whom, who will get the tenure and have due process rights, Who's a good teacher? Which teacher needs help? Which teacher needs to be terminated? And you can't have somebody come in who's taken a one-year course called How to Be a Leader and expect them to be able to do that. Yeah. So we should have ex- expert principals. We should have superintendents who are experienced enough to make decisions about curriculum, instruction, and personnel so that uh, they're not just looking at, at bad data and, uh, and cooking the books to uh, pump, their, pump up their own resume. It's it's all of those things. It's also changing the assessments. I think the assessments we have are stupid, dumbed-down assessments. Arnie Duncan says they're terrible assessments, and then he says go ahead and judge teachers based on these dumbed-down assessments. We need assessments that test knowledge and comprehension and not assessments that say pick one out of four bubbles. That's, yeah. that's a recipe for you know stupefying the population, which we've done a pretty good job of. So that would be a start. And I also think if we just had a kind of a fundamental... I'd love to see Arnie Duncan or whoever secretary and president go out day after day and say, in this country, we care about science. We want all of our kids to study science, whether it's tested or not. We care about history. We care about the arts. 
I would like to see one federal mandate, and you you can laugh at this if you wish. <laughs> I think it's really important. I would like to see every child have the opportunity to play a musical instrument. The reason I'm saying this, and it's only half in jest, is that if you play a musical instrument, you learn the importance of practice, you learn self-discipline, you have to do it alone, no one can do it for you, and then at some point you do it with others. It teaches almost everything you need to know other than literacy, and it's it's a wonderful set of skills that you can then use in every other part of your education. Which is why in my family we've required all of our kids to take some musical instruction, but if we mandated it, my fear would be we'd We'd cause millions of children to hate music. Uh, so that's well, always that's maybe their. That's what, maybe that's what we've done to literacy and numeracy. Yeah, it's part of it. I, you know, I, I certainly agree with you. I think music and art. You know, I was I was uh, a C student in art all through. I think school until seventh grade, which is probably my last art class, and it was a terrible loss mm-hmm. that I never learned to appreciate art. And as an adult, I've I've had a little opportunity to draw, and I've it's been. World changing. It's transformative, and it's bizarre that we think that's kind of like a, a luxury to teach children. And I right. think it's incredibly well, you know, important. When, when the budget cuts begin, uh, the arts go first, and for many kids, that's what brings them to school. Yeah, but it's a nice point that you know it's a it's a mixture of the other point I would make that's wonderful about music or art is not only do you have to practice to get better, you see it. You you might as a child not understand that connection, but after you've drilled. You see that you get better. You can't deny it. It's not like these test scores where there's all these fudge factors and and dishonest statistical techniques. Right. Every child who practices an instrument, for, doesn't matter how long, you know, more than more than three times is all it takes. Uh, if you go for five years, you see it. If it's three years, if it's one year, you get better. Right. Practice doesn't necessarily make perfect, but it undeniably makes better. Uh, it's a nice thing. Um, so go back to your other suggestions. Well, let me ask you a, different, a question about one you already made. Do you think there is any value to uh, the emphasis that we currently have in the public school system on requiring uh, education degrees? You said you should no. you should get a, a, a major in the field you're teaching. Right. No, I'm 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 a not I'm opposed to education degrees. Is there anything that that they learn there that that helps them be better teachers? I, I mean, it's obviously very intensive. Graduate education courses can be useful if the courses themselves teach one of two things. One is classroom management. It's really Uh, hard. And that's hard. You know, if your wife's a teacher, you know that's hard. But that's something that many, many ed schools don't even teach that. But that's very, very important. If you you can know, I have a young friend who went to an Ivy League college and has a graduate degree from Oxford, and she's brilliant, and she was a public school teacher for about seven minutes. Yeah, they ate her alive. Uh, Exactly. The kids chewed her up and threw her out because she didn't know how to control the class, and she also didn't understand how she could take all these things in her head and make them comprehensible to a teenager. But isn't that what you should learn in an education degree, yeah. that last part, all the things right. in your head and make them accessible to a teenager? I mean, what, we, what kids need or what young teachers need is the, the, the skills to be able to translate their knowledge into the terms that are uh, accessible and, and turn on, you know, get kids excited about learning. But what? I don't believe in undergraduate education degrees. I think that it's unfortunate, you know, they... I wish that all of those institutions would say, uh, you can take the courses as a sideline, but uh, you've got to get your major in, in whatever it is you're going to teach. Yeah. And people say, well, what about the elementary school teachers? I say they should get a degree, too. They, should, they too, should have a bachelor's degree in what they're going to teach. Well, of course, they teach nine things, so well, I guess... okay. They'll be, it'll be a richer staff and a, and a better staff if somebody has a, a major in music and somebody else has it in math. History, and, yeah. And you have a, a whole staff filled with people who uh, care enough about learning to be uh, have gotten degrees in the things they're studying. Yeah, and no, I... I um, it seems to be true that the educational degree is a fruitless uh, requirement. Anything else? What else would you push for? Um, well, the other thing is that I wish that President Obama would stop using the term failing schools. I hate that term because I believe that every instance that I know of, and I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but, but in, let me see, in most instances, a school that's called a failing school is one that has a lot of kids who come in with very, very low uh, achievement levels. They can't read. They can't write. They can't do math. And I saw this. I did a study with the Hoover Institution in Florida, and I looked at reading scores in high schools, and they said they had a crisis in the high schools. But I noticed that so many kids were coming to high school unable to read. And I thought the crisis is not in the high school. Yeah. 
the intake is, is, is bad. I mean, they're bringing kids in the high school who can't read, and then they say the high schools are failing. So I think that before you label a school a failing school, what you need is to send um, – I'd, I'd like to see every state have an evaluation team to go out to each school that has very low performance and say, what's going on here? You know, is it the teachers? Is it students don't speak English? Is it concentrated poverty and the kids are coming to, not coming to school because they're staying home and to babysit while their parents are, are looking for jobs or they don't have parents? I mean, they're, they're gonna, it's going to be a different recipe and a different situation for every school. And I'd like to see a, a diagnosis made, recommendations made, resources to follow through on the recommendations. And then if everything fails, close the school. But to have a program, as Obama is now proposing, of pick the bottom 5,000 and shutter them or privatize them, I think that's draconian, and I think it's demor- highly demoralizing to the teaching staff across the country. I guess – and you have some really powerful examples in the book of – in San Diego and in New York, where um, authoritarian, apparently authoritarian uh, school administ- uh, superintendents and administrators of the system instilled fear in teachers and demoralized them. Right. I, I guess the question would be, and, and this is the sort of the other side of the coin, in those five thousand schools at the bottom, whether, whether it's whoever's fault it is, and I think everyone would agree that there are cultural and other factors than just the quality of the instruction. Are there in those 5,000 schools teachers and, and principals struggling to excel and then and failing, or are they just doing something else? Well, you know, I, I've talked a lot in the, this past month, especially with teachers and, and visited with uh, many of them uh, across the country as I've traveled around talking about the book, and they feel like they're being turned into scapegoats. Uh, we have all kinds of societal problems in terms of income equality, concentrated poverty in the inner city, a place like Central Falls in Rhode Island, very poor area with tremendous numbers of kids who don't speak English, uh, is, and the staff is the only one being held accountable. And uh, I came across one blogger who said, we can't fire poverty, we can't fire parents, and we can't fire the kids, let's fire the teachers. Uh, and the teachers are feeling besieged. And, you know, I think that if you just close the school and you do it up the scale, let's say close 5,000 schools, has anybody thought through where those 5,000 new principals and hundreds of thousands of new teachers are going to come from, and will they be better? And the one example I know of, and, and New York City would fit in that category too, I was thinking of Chicago where, where this was evaluated, and in Chicago uh, the researchers found that about 40, well, it was 42% of the kids from the closed schools went to other low-performing schools, and on average there was no improvement. Yeah, well, that, I think it really highlights what I learned most from the book, but of course it also plays to my prejudice, so I want to say that out uh, up front, which is that on the surface, well, you have 5,000 5, schools where the students are doing horrifically. Yes, it might be the, part, the problem of the, of, the, of the parents and the students, but surely it, it, it wouldn't hurt to let those 5,000 new principals take a shot at it. Surely it wouldn't hurt if those teachers knew there was a chance they were going to get closed down. Surely that will motivate them. And I think the problem with, with that, what I would call a market language rather than a market process, is that too often government policy takes the language of markets, which, are, which is fundamentally about incentives, which is what this is about, and then tries to graft them into institutional arrangements where there's no market process. There's bureaucracy or government mandates. And the incentives are supposed to then be tailored and, and, and tweaked so that it looks like – it acts like a market because it has these incentives. And the problem is without the full range of effects, it doesn't work at all. It's, it's, it reminds me of the California energy market when they tried to use incentives to allocate energy. But they didn't have a market. It was a right. government-created market. Right. And it seems we're doing that in education that the main beneficiaries are the people who, as, you, as we talked about earlier, who, who fund the – who, who create the uh, curricular add-ons, the consulting, the training, all the bells and whistles. They have nothing – they don't get to the students. Right. And yet it has the language of market. So people like me are, can be lured into thinking, well, they're incentives, so it's like a market. Right. But it's not. And there's no fundamental process that, that allows those market improvements to take place. Right. Well, I'm with you on that. And uh, I think that if you look – I mean the – Certainly in, in the marketplace, the bottom line ought to be results, and we're not seeing results. 
Although I was struck, you know, when you say that, of course, the results that we're using to the measure, yeah, which we use to measure whatever, quote, success. But you know what? We're also using graduation rates where the kids that graduate matters. and then go into college and need remediation. Yeah. So that's not a very good measure No, I either. agree. My guest today has been Diane Ravitch. Diane, thank you for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. I've learned a lot from talking to you. Ditto. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.